We had the passion for these majestic creatures. Not only their beauty and determination, but their grace and their power. That passion was our reason to aim for greatness in everything we did. And it still is. thought about that. I think I irreverent it. and crass is a really, really good way to describe it when I'm nervous to tell people that I'm in a pod. Like, cause I, a lot of the time, like I'll tell, I'll tell folks at work like, Oh yeah. You know, if we're going to talk movies, um, I, I also do a podcast and you're like, Oh my gosh. And I'm like, I need you to know that if you decide to go down the road of listening to solid six movie podcasts, TM, 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 um, <laughs> that, it's gonna, it's a very hyperbolic version of myself. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You turn the volume up a bit. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You got it. You, you got it's it. It's hard though, because like you don't want to lead with those traits because there is a lot of, like we talked about for last show, a lot of thoughtful. I mean, we prepare a lot. It's like you That's, don't want to be self deprecating, but you also want to protect them and us. From, I like that when you say we prepare a lot, it's you and Josh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you for letting me guest on the show. You're not a guest. You're an equal contributor. <laughs> You're the backbone of this thing. Back tail. I'm pretty sure my mom still won't listen to the show because of me specifically. <laughs> the thing is, is like when we do when we do the show, it's like I imagine that the only people who are going to hear this show are already in this room. Yeah. It's like yeah. I don't I don't think about other people listening to the show. And then when I get like a message like from one of my friends listening, I'm like, hey, blah 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 blah. I'm like, oh shit, people listen to this show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, oh my God. <laughs> like I know, like I know from like stats, it's like the numbers, but the numbers just feel like a really like, you know, like That's an encouraging right. email that I get sometimes. Mm-hmm. So I screwed up. Uh, we have never covered Westerns nor legendary oh. director John Ford, nor iconic actor John Wayne. All major topics each, under the guise of decoding modern crypto-fascist allegory through the history of cinema. Whoa! And I, uh, because hubris, have decided that doing all of those things simultaneously was a good idea. Nevertheless, it's time to skin your smoke wagons, buckaroos, <laughs> kick the stakes out of your boots, get your on your caves. Woo! Episode yep. 105, yep. Westerns. Yo. Get along, little doggy. Paul, pa, where's Ma? <laughs> Ma don't love us no more. <laughs> she ran off with the railroad man. He ain't making no money. How do you explain that Mom was kidnapped by the Native Americans and will never return? <laughs> I mean, have you seen those book covers? Like Tan Fabio? Mm, lots of bodices. Ripped bodices. Ripped bodices and some sexy ass Native American men. Mm. Yep. She's having the time of her life. Yeah, she's she's doing great. I'm your host, Josh Gringo Griffith, and I'm joined by Brady Saddletramp Kimball and Double Barrel Allison DeGrazio. Giddy up, y'all. I got your double barrel right here. 
If this is your first time listening to Solid Six and Stagecoach brought you here, other than a few asides, we haven't covered any Westerns. We have episodes covering 103 other films, and I bet you can find something you'll like in our back episodes. The show is three friends who rotate hosting duties. Each person picks a double feature around a theme. Themes are really any idea that will spark a fun conversation. Our films vary quite a bit. We like to say we judge a film against itself which to us means we'll discuss how a movie became what it is, whether it was purely a filmmaker's vision, a product of an inevitable career arc, political forces, studio wrangling, cultural trends, collaborations with other creatives, rather than, you know, a show on top three reasons Donald Sutherland would beat Leonard Nimoy in a knife fight. Absolutely not. You don't think so? No. Spock's got it? Spock's got it for sure. But Sutherland is the inspector guy. Donald Sutherland? And body snatchers. Oh, wait a minute. He is very attractive. And Nimoy's a little San Francisco tool bag. The moment I said that, Josh's eye twitched. I can see it going either way. Okay. Because I can see that Spock has his psychic powers and he can use the Vulcan neck grip to gain the other upper hand. Mm. Or if, you know, if he's like horn dogging out, like ponfaring, like big time, like he's going <laughs> to just like kill your ass. Wait, but you asked if it was Leonard Nimoy, not Spock. And I feel like Leonard Nimoy, you could just like snap over your snap over your knee with a little backbreaker. He's got, he's, he's. He used to box. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's tall, but I think he's like filled out. I don't think he's like. Doug maybe Jones. his arms are, but maybe his back isn't, is what I'm saying. He's got a weak back. <laughs> his arms and his legs are stacked, but he's got a tiny torso. <laughs> he has a diminutive spine. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm glad we had that conversation. <laughs> Advantage Nimoy. <laughs> Advantage Sutherland? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. I'll think about it. All right. We'll, we'll rest on that one. Our last film was 1960's Peeping Tom. Any final thoughts on Peeping Tom? We all commented on how well that episode turned out. So whatever we did last time, let's just keep doing that. We just have to have Dirk on every episode? Probably. Yeah. That's probably what helps the chaos. I, the chaos yeah. juice. He's like he's like the binding agent of of the baking... The loaf of bread that is solid six. Mm. Focaccia. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was a it was a fantastic episode. We're very proud of it. Also, Peeping Tom was an excellent, excellent movie. I yeah. think it's pretty dark, and I think it's really interesting for films coming out at that time in England. Oh yeah, yeah. no, it was definitely like ahead of it. I mean, it was a forward-looking psychosexual thriller. I'm still kind of blown away at how um, compelling the prop design was for the murder instrument. Yeah. It's like just like yeah. to have that thought and like for the, for the, not to give it away, but the, for the camera to be the murder weapon, I thought was like really crazy. Yeah. Oh, it was great. Um, yeah. Last thing I'll say is that I, I hosted that episode. So whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Move on. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> So uh, my general take on Westerns and the reason maybe we haven't done so far is I get the impression, Allison, that you don't really care for Westerns. And Brady, you're maybe like Western neutral. Like you're not really pro or against. I'm Western curious. Western curious. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I, uh, my grandmother used to watch them a lot growing up. And I just, I remember being just so bored watching them and, and I, you know, I, I don't, I don't dislike them now. Do you, I just, do you remember I, what kind of Westerns she was watching? No. 
I don't. I, it wasn't I, like I, Lee I, Van Cleef burning a man alive or anything like that. <laughs> no, it was very, it was extremely so not, not generic. Not the Italian ones. It was the, no, it was okay. extremely generic. Yeah, right. Like it was not spaghetti Westerns at all. But even so, like, I don't necessarily, like when we watch like the big name ones, like Fistful of Dollars and things like that, mm-hmm. they, I, they're, they're good. They're done well. But I ultimately, it seems, it's just formulaic. Right. Me. Right. So mm-hmm. I, I don't have a, I like it for its place in history. I like it because of what Italian cinema was needing to do kind of at the time because of what, what was happening in the U.S. But like beyond that, I just, yeah. I don't have that big of an interest in okay. it. Okay. All right. I mean, I grew up around a lot of where these movies were shot. Well, sure. So Westerns were a big part of the culture, whether it's in books or movies or TV shows or whatever. So, um, you know, I have family that's really that are really into westerns, and so I saw Quigley Down Under a lot as a child. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, Peck and Paw is one of my favorite directors, yada yada. And um, which is the yada yada over Peck and Paw? That was really hard for you. <laughs> very hard. We'll talk more about anti westerns or revisionist westerns next time. But uh, cool. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of like Allison. There is a certain like brain deadness with some westerns that like unless it's beautifully shot like the movie we're going to talk about tonight, it's going to be pretty hard to keep okay. it going. All right. Yeah. So I enjoy Westerns. I see them as being like sort of like this plastic cinema form where uh, the ones that are our boilerplate are just exactly that. They're procedural. They're kind of boring. There's really no stakes involved in them. Uh, but the ones that get a little more creative or like are able to just use the format and then say something with them I'm a little more interested in. Um, as someone that also like is interested in history, I I do kind of like stress out about like the the differences between like the real history of the West versus the sure. way it's perceived and also the way it sort of resonates through time. Mm-hmm. So uh, Westerns, as we watch them, whether it's Fistful of Dollars or Stagecoach, um, are kind of full of bullshit. And I was just wondering from each of you, what do you think of the... Of, of the Westerns that you've seen, which aspects do you think are the most full of shit? The, which of the Westerns I've seen? Which ones are the what, most? In, like in a Western sto- movie, what do you look at? Like, there's just no way that never happened or it oh, never happened like that. I, I, I would say, I mean, I know that there are ample examples in history of, of people like Billy the Kid who um, were um, extremely open to the native and Mexican cultures that were around the South. And so was able like, you know, those, those legends are real, but we're like watching, like what's the one where the guy's like dragging the fucking coffin all over the place. Django. Django! Django! Um, There's, there's certain ones where they're just like, it's so the, the honor and the pride and the, the dustiness of the West are just so, um, Impo- like I just think my boobs start sweating because I'm just thinking it's like impossibly sweaty and disgusting. Right. But it, like, there's something about like the the antihero that's in all of those movies where it's like they're always kind of shoveling off with like a broken rib and like a bullet hole somewhere with his mm-hmm. like his like hot senorita or yeah. like the bar wench, mm-hmm. and it's just kind of like ugh. the romanticism of it. I guess is like so the sentimentality. The sen- yes, the sentiment. Right. It's it's just it doesn't look glamorous at all to me. 
I see. It doesn't feel glamorous. It actually feels like it was quite hard. I mean, and knowing some of the history of when like people were traveling west, like women were just suffering with like yeast infections constantly. And I just like, I can't imagine like wearing all, I'm thinking as a, as a, the female perspective, like wearing a thousand layers and then like get my period while some dude is like slamming whiskey and like, I just So you're, you're stuck in Meek's cutoff here. I was just thinking the exact same thing. I am, I am, I am. Yeah. Uh, For me, it's the idea that like, if civilization and society is fucking with your shit, it's just like, peace out we're just like Adam and Eve and we're just going to go create our own civilization out here. It's like, motherfucker, you're going to die of like thirst and Dysentery. you're going to eat your wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Stay alive. Absolutely. So I, the, uh, the brutality of the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause they're like always, that's another thing. They're always passing around like a single canteen amongst like five people. And I'm like, that's no, I'm, being to Southern Utah or Arizona, like that canteen is going to last you like four hours. Yeah. That's why you always have like German tourists. You're like, I don't know. I want to go down to like the Red Rock area. And then they just walk out. Like they're just going down the street in Berlin. It's like, motherfucker, like this, this place will destroy your ass. <laughs> right. <laughs> is that true? Unforgiving environment. Is that true that like, like German tourists just like. I, I don't know if it's German, but yeah, there is a. European tourists. Every time, every year, every summer. It is very Lake, American to go down there. Salt Lake newspapers. It's like, well, some tourists didn't do the math on water oops yeah <laughs> gotta bail them out when i look at the the westerns like in like and then i think about the the real history something that shows up immediately is of course like the whole issue of like representation um like specifically we know that there were a lot of african-american cowboys but even more so was was the presence of like the vaquero culture like the like the cowboys were one thing but like the spanish cowboys Mexican cowboys were much more prolific, much more foundational to establishing everything. A lot of the cowboy like lingo borrows from the vaqueros, like the stampede, buckaroo. Mm -hmm. Those are all vaquero terms. And like, you don't really, it's like, it's as if everything north of the Rio Grande is just instantaneously white people. Yep. But it really wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing is uh, bowler hats. Like everyone wears like a cowboy hat. Or like if you're like a tough guy like uh, Clint Eastwood, you've got like the like the, the the gambler or the stalker style hat that he wears. But everybody was wearing bowler hats back in the day. That's actually more badass in my opinion. And it's uh, stylish so, and badass, right? And if you're going to get your picture taken, of course you're wearing your bowler hat. But if you were actually working in the field, the cowboy hat that you were wearing kind of looks more like an, an Amish person's hat. It's like rounded on the top. I was noticing that in the film we were going to talk about when they they show up in the end, they all have those very, very tall hats. And I was like, "Ah, I bet that's more, I bet that's more accurate. So stuff like that, like just what they were wearing, uh, the representation of like who cowboys were and who they weren't. Um, Pistols, not very common. Mm. Like the most common gun in the Wild West was a shotgun. And then you saw rifles more often than that. And then you occasionally would see pistols Mm. in terms of the actual reality, the number of times guys like squared off in the street and like shot each other dead. That happened exactly once mm. according mm. to what's known. Yeah. Not that like records are complete. I don't know, but these kinds of things stick in my brain as far as like how Westerns are kind of like this game of telephone that's been being played for decades and decades. Yeah. Hundreds of years without anybody interrupting it to like correct it ever. Mm-hmm. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're more, as they say in the man who shot Liberty Valance, it's like we're, 
we're more interested in like the myth than the truth. Right. Print the legend, as mm-hmm. they say. Well said. So we haven't talked in a little bit, Brady. How you been? I'm doing great, Josh. Just as a reminder to all the listeners, um, if you don't have authentic, uh, sincere, curious people in your life who are willing to grow and don't listen or want to um, share in your experience, try to find try, try to find your people. Uh, it's it's kind of important to life. So, just your 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 PSA to find your community. So, some attributes of what does that mean? <laughs> I'm vague. I'm vague posting. <sighs> I'm vague tweeting. Um, but so yeah, it's worth the time to find your people. Yeah, write down write down what you seriously write down what you want from the friends and family that you have around you and say, is this person providing that for me or not? I'll leave it at that. Um, Damn. That's what happened last week. Just lots of introspection. Uh, and, and into it, man. Just like let it, bam. <laughs> A lot Just of catharsis. Bam. All right. Um, but in regards to movies, I want to talk about a Macedonian film because I'm becoming Macedonian a Macedonian film. expert. Sorry. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so this is You Won't Be Alone from this year, which is 2022. Um, I saw this on Shudder, but uh, this is directed by Goran Stolevsky. Um, and this follows a peasant from the 18th century in Macedonia who is visited by a witch and is scratched by the witch. And I think the witch takes her organs. Whoa. Um, but she is visited as a baby. Um, and so the mom basically puts the baby in a cave to grow up to be a young woman. And then she becomes a shapeshifter. And so through that shapeshifting, you get the perspective of all these different people inside of the society. And it follows women who are excited to have childbirth, women who want a husband. It actually follows a man for a while. She shapeshifts into a man. And this movie's not going to be for everybody. This is basically somebody watching like a Terrence Malick movie like Thin Red Line or Mm -hmm. Tree of Life or anything like that. And saying like, what if we put some Wiccan shit in it? Um, So all the women whisper. They're whispering the entire movie. It's whispering monologues about life and death and loss and hope and souls and sex and death and I don't know, like everything. Um, and so it was a bit... It's a classic Macedonian film right there. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Working on my book. Um, you can tell it's made by a first-time director and because there is repetition and he's trying to say something with his repetition, but it takes too long mm. to oh. get there. Okay. Um, so so he's I saw what he's trying. Intelligent, but unskilled. Correct. Uh-huh. He'll get there. He'll get there. So mixed. I liked it because I like people quietly whispering into microphones to me for two hours, but you might find that grating and annoying and boring. I've seen stills of this on social media and it looks like my kind of jam, but mm. uh, we'll see. We'll mm. see what happens. I still have to catch up on a, f- a few movies that have come up recently. I still want to see The Square. Oh, you need to watch that because it Because it looks like, it looks adjacent to my profession. I, I need to talk to you about that okay. movie. Yeah, I watched that like a month or two ago and it's uh, I laughed a lot. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that's a good one. So... I am guesting on Grindbin, um, which is like an exploitation podcast um, and 80s 
movie podcast. And so we're covering Angel 3, mm-hmm. colon, uh-huh. the final chapter. Um, so I watched all the Angel movies. Um, <laughs> sorry, I didn't watch four. And the reason why it's not considered part of the trilogy is somebody made a movie and then retroactively called it an Angel movie. It's very bizarre. Um, so it's not canon. It is not canon. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, two is probably my favorite, maybe. It's got like zany... Sorry, let me slow down. This this follows uh, a woman who, when she was 15 years old, was a prostitute. And then she got off the street, went to law school, put her clothes back on to, uh, to get on the streets to help solve her protector's murder. Then she went and became a photographer and then put her clothes back on for a slavery drug trade situation. What? So she just keeps getting back in her lady of the night clothes to throw down with different CD. Situations. Well, she like kicks the shit out of him, doesn't she? Yeah, but I mean, the first one is it's kind of like a movie you're going to bring up in just a minute, where it's like there's like little weird melodrama, like the shooting of a gun is like a significant event in the first one, and the second one is just like a cartoon, um, mm-hmm. and then the third one's very sleazy. So they're all over the place. Would recommend them. <laughs> I well, I mean, we have so we went to the vinegar syndrome, uh, uh, like. Um, pop-up that they had a couple months ago and that was like one of the ones that we purchased wasn't it was um yeah we got angel An- we got angel too yeah yeah i really enjoyed that film it was uh, great it, it, was it really- is it is very cartoonish mm-hmm. and you know it's uh angel like back in the back on the streets mm-hmm. and hanging out with all of like the sunset strip like riffraff cast of characters yeah. there's like johnny sparkle or whatever <laughs> he's fun he's he's annoying he as shit, glitter or whatever yeah that's his power move. There's the drugstore cowboy guy and yeah, the drag drag person, drag queen. Um, and then um, I love the scene where she's like in like hot purple and hot pink and she goes into the library to study and it's all these like stuffy dudes just like staring at her like, you don't belong here. Like they can't believe. Yeah. A woman. Someone. Yeah. Dressed like that. The yeah. library. Yeah. Was it was it like a research montage? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nice. With like with like little high heel shoes with like little ankle socks. Yeah. And let's just say I haven't kept up on my fashion of the ladies of the night, but I'm pretty sure they're barely wearing anything these days. And so to have her like not seen, so, Brady. Okay. Not so. I beg to differ. I would say that you can have it's more of an attitude. So you can <laughs> I think that if you because sometimes leaving more to the imagination is more sexual. So I, I would say that sometimes you can have um, very suggestive outfits that are actually covering more of the erogenous zones because the men or whomever is purchasing the sexual transaction is intrigued okay. by what his imagination I, or their have, imagination have is. Have I told you the, the first time that I recognized that women were engaged in the oldest profession? They were wearing like track suits and I was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> like we're in just, Ohio. They're just uh they're just uh staying around. Talking to people. Wait, she just got oh my god. Yeah. Okay. Well, I this is I'm feeling like I'm getting educated. There here. yeah, there was a gal when I lived in Oakland uh, that we would see every once in a while who um um, would be wearing like a very normal outfit. And then when she was advertising, she would just, she just whip her titties out and then she'd sit <laughs> with like her boobs, like just out like tits akimbo. Do- yeah. Big time. And, and I was, I was like, Oh, 
I guess, I guess the lights on, lights on, lights off. I don't know. Yeah, lights on. Yeah, lights on. So, <laughs> but um, but I would I would say uh, I think that there are all kinds of outfits a okay. sex worker can wear in order to advertise a John. Well, we're keeping my ignorance in. Allison, how are you doing? Great. I watched movies. <laughs> you hit me with it so hard. I don't know. I gotta let some. I gotta I give know. some space. Let things breathe. I apologize. Oh God. I, um, I was uncomfortable with my ignorance. So don't be. Okay. Don't. I have you ever dressed? This is for both of you. Have you ever dressed in a way that you found to be sexually suggestive in order to like intrigue a date? Yeah. Have you? Yeah. Would that include Chester? That's it. It absolutely includes chest hair. <laughs> Anytime Josh wears any type of a V-neck, I'm like, "What are you doing, you slut?" <laughs> you know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> you see straight through. She's my careful ruse. <laughs> She's looking you in the eyes, and you're like, "Hey, look down here. Look down no, here." No, no, no. There was like, there was like one time we was we were like very first dating, and Josh didn't wear like an undershirt one time, and then like the top button was unbuttoned, and I saw his chest hair, and I was like. I am. I'm sorry. I cannot focus on the conversation. He literally said to me, he's like, Allison, my eyes are up here. And I'm like, I don't care. I knew what I was doing. Yeah. That's great. It's a playful ground. Yes. Uh, Brady, have you? Oh, sexual stuff. I don't, I don't know. You've never, you've never like, this is going to leave. Like turn it up a notch. Yeah. I mean, basic shit like grooming in my eyebrows or something. But when, not close. When you go on Grindbend, I would like you to wear just something a little extra. Like I want you, I know because you're I know you're gonna be doing it over Zoom or whatever, but yeah. I, I want you to just I want you to have like a piece of flair. Uh I have some cardigans somewhere. They can't see your fucking card. Oh wait, no, no, no. They can't see your cardigan. Yeah. That's I used to be like that, like adding layers. You so. add layers to be sexual. That's very more for flair. <laughs> Um, what's the what's the name of the oh never mind Go what ahead. what's the name of the what the makeover show with the gay dude oh queer eye for the straight guy yeah need that you need five dudes to tell you how to do but sexually okay anyway we, we know one of those guys do you really mm-hmm. which one Bobby I don't know which who, nobody cares about Bobby was he the cook he's the home decorator <laughs> interior decorator I'm just that's amazing yeah that's yeah that'd actually be pretty cool yeah. What are you saying? What? About our, <laughs> about our it'd, house. It'd be, it'd be awesome if I knew if, someone that could decorate a house. If, if I looked more attractive to Josh. As well. <laughs> I, was, I thought he was talking about how I decorate our home. It doesn't matter. I watched Maniac. Good. I watched me. Okay, so. Um, yeah, I got confused. Which which Maniac did you watch? William Lustig's uh, 1980s Maniac. The guy okay. who also did Maniac Cop, which I thought was weird. That I didn't, I didn't put two and two together. That there's, um, he uses maniac quite a bit in his movie titles. Um, I forget what I was watching, like the history of horror, and maniac kept coming up in this very like put on a pedestal, must watch mm-hmm. if you are a true horror slasher fan. So I did, and I was I was waiting for a night that like I could do it by myself because I wasn't sure what it was going to be like. Sure. And I know, you know, we have this. Yep. I have this thing with you that you yep. don't care about. Right. Um, 
And I, I didn't, it didn't wow me, mm. you know, or like, I, I like the character, the yeah. main guy. Um, he looks a lot like a, like a family friend of ours, which was really weird. Joe um, Spinell. Yeah. Looks a lot like a family friend of ours. And I actually sent a, sent a picture of him to my brother and I was like, isn't this look like mm-hmm. Justin in like 20 years? I, somebody, somebody talked to me about this because I, you know, this is the same kind of like information I felt like I was getting when someone was like, oh, you should watch, uh, you should watch like Begotten or you should watch, um, uh, uh anything from Dia Dada or whatever. Mm-hmm. I just thought this was okay. See, this, if this is the movie that I'm thinking about, I remember bits and pieces of it being like real, real violent, real edgy, like, like, like gruesome, like brutality and violence. I wonder if I had an edited version. That would be fucking crazy if you watch this movie with, <laughs> with an edit. I do, Did I, you see women get scalped? Yeah. Did you see the, one of the best shotgun blasts of all time? Yeah. Yeah. It's not edited. Yeah. So, and it's, to and it's Tom Savini and it, you know, yeah. he's, he's a genius. The guy is like, absolutely mm-hmm. an excellent excellent makeup artist so it, it was more to me it felt like i was watching like a tribute to his work more than it was like the story i see where because there there's the scene where the gal's getting scalped and it is like tits but also um it's not i don't think it's any more or less violent than anything else i've seen much more violent things of the same era i don't know have you seen this movie brady i have seen this movie what do you think yeah it's good yeah, yeah it's not my favorite i mean i like I like the kind of cartoonishness of Maniac Cop and Maniac Cop Two. Yeah, um, yeah. it's kind of like, uh, it kind of, kind of a lazy comparison is like people love e- Evil Dead and Evil Dead Two, and I, I'm the Army of Darkness guy. Ah, it's kind of like, yeah, yeah, Maniac Cop and, and Maniac is kind of the same way for me, where it's like, yeah, this is like disturbing. This guy's scalping women, and but the fact that a lot of it is about his mom and him, and the flashbacks, it. Mm-hmm. it I felt like I got the point pretty quick. I see. And it wasn't spooky. No, it's not spooky. In fact, I'm glad you watched this because like compare that to like Peeping Tom and like it's a lot more. I did. I did because I I was thinking like, because I was hearing that someone this and I can't quite remember the conversation. It was Eli Roth speaking. uh, He was being interviewed and he was talking about how this was either the death of slashers because people were so appalled by it. Or it was the beginning of slashers, but we just watched Peepy Tom, Peeping Tom, and I felt like that was the beginning of slashers. I mean, this was 1980, so yeah. So this the, would the been boom the, was the boom was kicking off. Well, it would have been in the 70s, late 70s, right? With like, around, yeah, like yeah, uh, Friday Thirteenth, yeah, yeah. And slashers aren't really my thing. I've talked about that, you know, before. I they're just I I think they're kind of boring, um, and like formulaic but i do think that slashers might be one of the easiest genres to do yes i think that musical comedy is probably the hardest (laughs) (laughs) but i'm pretty sure that like a bunch of kids and a video camera could make a slasher film like all right shout it to lonely island yeah (laughs) yeah yeah i got that we i i made one with friends of mine in middle school Mm. and uh and our teacher made fun of us because it was so bad Great job, so, teacher. Yeah, good job, teacher. Jeez, what a fucking sure. Way to kill my uh, dreams. It was awesome. 1998. So great. You have one job, which is like shepherding children through their sense of curiosity. And no, Mr. Hanson, them. Mr. Hanson didn't give a fuck about Man. us. He wore overalls and he had a shaved head and he was very sarcastic and it looked like he listened to nothing but cake and Weezer all day long. Oh, so he wore uh, wore cardigans. If you put a cardigan underneath the overalls that he wore every goddamn day, yeah. Fuck you, Mr. Hanson. Anyway. Yeah. 
I'm going to get my sexy overalls for my next dinner date with Capri. <laughs> <laughs> just show up wearing a barrel and suspenders. <laughs> I just see you showing up with like no shirt with the mm-hmm. straps like strategically placed. Mm-hmm. One of them off like the 80s. <laughs> yeah. I'm a rapper just, from the 90s. Or Jean-Claude Van Damme showing up to a premiere for one of his movies in the 80s. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I guess it's like I'd see your wife just like dropping a glass on the floor when she turns around. She's mm. like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm. uh, how are you, Josh? I'm good. I'm good. Um, let's see. Just jump right into it. Movie-wise, watched a couple movies. We watched the 1953 War of the Worlds. Oh, cool. That yes, was fun. That was. Good review. Mm-hmm. I think the most impressive part for you, just putting your words in your mouth, sure. was the flying wing bomber. I don't think you'd ever seen no, that before. No, no. I didn't even know that existed. I was like, How, is this the future? I I didn't know that that plane existed. Yeah. And, um, you know, the special effects, Ray Harryhausen, I think he was working with the special effects team with Disney. I think there's a yeah, Disney connection yeah. somehow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that was pretty good. Uh, but the movie I really want to talk about, uh, went to a blind screening on Friday. Um, we went to the Hollywood theater. It was vinegar syndrome. So we didn't really know anything about this movie going in. You just had to take it on judgment. To be honest, I was kind of on the fence, but I was like, you know what, what else do I have going on? Like, why not just go see a movie? It's probably Mm going to be all right. And I'm really glad I went because it was amazing. (laughs) 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 The film uh, is from 1975. It's a Ken exploitation cat and mouse thriller. It's called Sudden Fury, which has nothing to do with the movie, but whatever. <laughs> and everyone's wearing polyester and denim because it's Canada in the 70s. And it's basically about a husband and wife that are having some marital problems and they get into a car accident and the wife is hurt badly. The husband is hurt is hurt just a little bit. But now he's trying to make sure that she's dead. And another motorist comes along, sort of intercedes a bit. And now he's all wrangled up in their business and becomes this cat and mouse where the good guy motorist is trying to help this lady. And the husband is trying to make sure that she dies. Uh, It was really fun. Uh, Directed by a fellow named Brian DeMood. It's his only movie. He never made another one. Which is devastating. And uh, there were like audible groans and shouts and applause from the audience while this thing was playing. And of course, it's, you know, the Hollywood theater and they're playing a Vinegar Syndrome movie. So this is like a real, you know, it's a lively audience. Mm-hmm. This, this, these are your people. Uh, but yeah, I would uh, I would definitely check it out. Like as far as like comparisons, I would say, mm, it kind of reminded me of that Oliver Stone movie, U-Turn. It also oh, yeah. kind of reminded me of that. Uh, what was that uh, Kurt Russell movie with the trucker? With the trucker was it Big Trouble in Little China? <laughs> oh hey, <laughs> I see you. I see you there. No, it's one where the trucker steals his wife. Breakdown. <laughs> Breakdown. Yeah. So if you like those kinds of movies, I think uh, Sudden Fury from 1975 would be really fun for you to check out. I definitely enjoyed it. Uh, you're not going to see the, end, the ending coming. Um, oh my god the ending yeah right oh my god the ending uh let's see other than sudden fury uh it's been a big week for science yes it has been a big big week for science so we're talking about many tens of billions of dollars in research on the table 
both between the Large Hadron Collider and the Webb Space Telescope. I would say we talked about this like a little bit before the show, but both of which are basically looking for the same thing, which is, well, I guess Large Hadron Collider right now is focused on what they're calling naturalness. Mm -hmm. And the James Webb is basically just like walking out as sort of like highlight reel. It's basically flexing on Hubble right now. So like all the new images are basically just showcasing to the public what its capability is going to be in the future. Is that even fair? I mean, like let Hubble just be what Hubble was. Well, I mean, science is a, is a rungs on a ladder. So, you know, the only thing that replaces science is better science. I know. So just like, don't, don't compare, just appreciate and then build on top of. But that's the problem. And this is why I texted you is that I want Josh to explain this stuff to me because the presentation of why this was better was like, here's a fuzzy, fuzzy version of this picture. And here's a not fuzzy version of this picture. I'm like, okay, cool. Thanks, mm. stuffy politicians. But then I went on Twitter and I saw all sorts of like people talking about a gravitational lensing yep. and all sorts of crazy shit around yes. exoplanets. Yes. And like which uh, um, solar systems they're trying to explore and why. And I was like, see, if Josh would have introduced me to all this stuff, there would be, I would be lining up for space camp tomorrow. Yeah, so the the fundamental... Okay, so first of all, the James Webb Space Telescope is basically designed as an apex piece of technology. They designed it to say, let's take everything that we can possibly do and throw it all at one piece of tech. Let's, let's build not just the next space telescope, let's build the final space telescope, right? So they, they took every possible technical advantage with the very robust sensor suite. They put it all in one thing, with the capability that if they discover something really fucking bitching, they can change the mission and focus on that. Life. So, Life. so right now what we have is a huge reflector. Um, was it like three meters, four meters across? It's or I, I should notice off the top of my head. It's a uh, an order of magnitude larger than Hubble, and that's mm-hmm. how you have to think of these things. It's like if you don't you don't want to be a little bit, you need to be a lot bit. So the reflector is a folding apparatus that has like these hexagonal shapes that that uh, autofocus basically. Plated in gold because gold is the best reflector for radiation, all radiation. It's so like aluminum, silver, whatever, like gold is the best. So it's, it's plated in gold. It's not focusing purely on optical light. Uh, so not like visual range light. Mm-hmm. It's focused on both infrared and optical and others. Okay. So they're not calling it light. They're calling it spectra, which is uh, a brand new terminology you'll be finding in the standard system of measurement. <laughs> <laughs> Just to kick it back to the last episode. Uh, so the, as far as the things that they could potentially be hunting for uh, exoplanet data, because it has, has an infrared spe- spectroscopy device on it. And what that does is it basically tells the astronomers who are looking at things, the chemical composition of the object yes. they're looking at. Yes. Which mm. is which is key when you're looking at exoplanets. Right. So in addition to, to be able to look at whatever they want, it can also do those kinds of critical analyses. The gravity lensing that you mentioned is very important because at this point, both the Large Hadron Collider and the James Webb mm-hmm. Space Telescope are both looking for dark energy and dark matter. Yeah. We're running into, on both the very small scale and the very large scale, we're running into effects and forces that cannot be reconciled with the existing yes. explanation of physics. Yes. So on the one hand, we're looking at 
sort of like this big sieve, this big funnel with the space telescope. We're going to take all the data and all the information and try and filter it into one cohesive equation. And then on the other end with the Large Hadron Collider, we're taking the super precise measurements where we're pushing all this crap out of the way so we can find the one oh little God. thing that we're looking for. Mm -hmm. I understand you. Did I ever tell you the story? So I used to bartend really, really close to Caltech. Yeah. And so a lot of the students and professors would come in and get drinks all the time and I would sit and have conversations with them. And they had, they had a professor that would come in who his whole thing was um, dark matter and dark energy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'd sit and talk about it, but he was also a cocaine dealer. <laughs> Makes, that makes perfect sense. I know, I know. But yeah, so yeah, he would, he would. Because honestly, like I imagine that you could have a much more complete conversation about dark matter and dark energy with a Coke dealer. Yeah. Than with someone who was sober. Awesome. Yeah. Everyone, all the professors that would come in or anybody that worked at Caltech or GPL that would come in and like sit, I mean, they all were like the most piercingly brilliant people I'd ever spoken to, but mm -hmm. also loved acid. Sure. Yeah. And and we're like going to Burning Man and, and all, yeah. all the stuff. But Opens yeah. up new neural pathways. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So the, the question with both of these technologies is, are they going to find things that are, that basically justify the expense? Because if like Large Hadron Collider has already found a couple of things, evidences of what they call naturalness. So uh, in looking at particle physics, they're finding these little gaps where it's like, okay, well, we have this gluon and these... Uh, whoa. What's, no, I just, you said gluon. I was like, whoa. Yeah, so they're, they're finding things and the presence of these things suggests the presence of other things. So for example, like a, like a Higgs boson or a, a Higgs particle is super lightweight. Mm -hmm. It's way more light than it should be which suggests that there is another particle in opposition counteracting its weight. Right. So in order for these two things to be in balance or to be natural, they have to find the existence of the other thing. This is what they're calling naturalness, mm -hmm. that the, these particles exist in suspension of each other. Right. A little yin-yang situation. Exactly. So naturalness right now is winning because they have steadily, since they fired the thing up, when it's running at full tilt boogie, they've found evidence of this stuff. So right now, the Large Hadron Collider is uh, providing evidence of its utility. The issue is that in order for, if they don't find what they're looking for, either they have to come up with a totally different way, as in not particle collider physics, to like look for these things. Because the next, the next collider that they have to build can't build be just a little bit bigger than LHC. It has to be an order of magnitude bigger, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is going to be impossible to build. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, same thing with the James Webb. It's like they want to make discoveries, but they want to make them at a regular pace because if they discover all this stuff, it's going to... Anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These technologies are playing chicken with their own obsolescence, but right now it, yeah. it's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, given the fact that we've had so many existential crises in the last couple of years in various forms, I would not be surprised if all of a sudden it's like, hey, we woke up one day and it's like, hey, we found life in another planet, so let's let's go that way. Um, and all of a sudden, everything changes, or something's interacting with the with you know the space telescope, or yeah, or yeah. I mean, this fucking sentient AI at Google and that guy, the the guy that talked to it, Lambda. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if you saw the interviews with this guy, but oh. you seem like he's he seems like he's wacky. But the Bloomberg Technology interview, he is on fucking point, and he. he Seems a lot more legitimate. I was. Than, I read a headline somewhere yeah. that the AI had like hired its own lawyer. Mm -hmm. 
No. Yep. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'll send you the Google or uh, the Bloomberg technology thing. Cause this guy's, he's one of us. He's okay. talking, he's talking about everyone having good intentions, but systematic processes breaking down and causing the corporation to have ill intent. So he's anyway, okay. He's, he's, he's okay. a Caltech acid dropper. I'm sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right on. Right yeah. anyway. I found acid in my room recently. <laughs> I had forgotten that uh, a friend of mine for my birthday last year got me like, oh, it, it's just an envelope that says, please only take a quarter. And I was like, what's in here? <laughs> I was like, oh, nice. Well, hopefully the kitty cats can't get to it. No, no. it's That's good. Well, who knows? Don't need them to cook their brains. I, You know what? I just don't know. I'm sure that they tested it on some cat in the 1960s for the FBI yeah. or some shit like that. It just turns into giga cats where they just like rule the house. I mean, they probably already do, but they we don't have control. But yeah, the images are fucking dope. Yeah. For this James Webb thing, uh, I am going to be following it very closely, and I look forward to talking to you about the stars in the weeks and months to come. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing what happens. Like the you know, better science produces better instruments. Better instruments produces better science, and I think that. Um, uh, we, I won't say we're going to have answers to big questions, but like we have an opportunity to radically change the success or the the viability of the human race within like the next 10, 15 years. That guy has bootstraps. And where I'm going with that is our understanding of quantum mechanics and particle physics is going to inform our ability to create something like fusion energy or to say, be more, yeah. more efficient. Uh, about how we build technologies that will enable us to survive. So I don't think of the James Webb Space Telescope or the Large Hadron Collider as necessarily being life or death, but the stakes are high. It's so, a symbol of hope. Yeah, there you go. The the light on the hill. The beacon of freedom. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't already, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing, a five-star review does help us out quite a bit. As always, please leave us a voicemail on solid6.net slash voicemail or just click the microphone button in the corner. You can also email us at podcast at solid6.net and we love hearing from you, whether it's episodes new or old. Do we have any emails? We do have an email. Whoa. From a listener named Burf Torkelson. (laughs) Oh yeah, Burf Torkelson. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, Great email. Burf, uh, I basically asked on Twitter, like, do you like horses or not? And so he responds with a horse story. Um, it's quite lengthy. So for brevity, we're just going to focus on the last half of this. So um, he's riding a horse, or excuse me, they're riding a horse. And they say, to say I was enjoying this experience would be to lie the world's largest lie. Then suddenly the trail broke open to a gorgeous beach. We trotted along the ocean's edge in a scene like something from a horse movie, which, let's be honest, why are we titling horse movies? The only people who will watch these movies are horse people. Just call them horse movie number one, horse movie number two. The only people who watch them want to look at horses. Weirdos. Speaking of weird, people in our group were looking at me a lot and some were taking pictures. I was being kind and waving, thinking they were being nice. Only when I dismounted the horse did I see why they were all looking and taking photos. My horse has a penis that weighed more than I do. It was enormous. Cartoonishly so. I hate to be redundant, but fuck horses. 
Thanks, Burf. Thanks, Burf. Mr. Trokelson. Sorry I cut your story in half, but it was it was quite lengthy. I had the pleasure of seeing Burf's ankles last week. <laughs> um, and as the weather warms up and we all uh, maybe juggle with the idea of, of going horseback riding, I would just keep that in mind that having a, a young goth on your back might be arousing for a horse. Mm. And maybe this was Burf's fault. Are you victim blaming here? Well, he wasn't a victim. He was just a passerby, I guess. In like the erotic journey of a horse. I think anyone that's into the horse films, I please take this out. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I could have I could have bailed you out, but I was getting overwhelmed by this story. <laughs> I know that like have you um horse people and horse girls are like a like a it's a thing. It's a thing. It's a it's a definite thing. Mm-hmm. There was a there was a, a TikTok story that I saw on Instagram a little while ago because I need to differentiate because I don't want people to think I have TikTok because I'm 35. Um, but there was someone like dressed at like an all black with like a horse's latex mask on, going like, uh, "No one understood me. I was a rescue, and I got spooked and I kicked over a lantern in the barn and started a fire." <laughs> I was like, I literally did that as a child. I literally had those like, like a pretend mm. horse moments as a child where like, I am wild and no one can tame my spirit. I'm going to buck off this rider and run into the sunset. If uh, I went on a date with a woman who dressed in their horse garb, that'd be pretty sexy, pretty sexually suggestive. <laughs> you just show up wearing boots. chaps. <laughs> <laughs> And they're blazers on your your overalls. Mm -hmm. Yeah, whip whip thing, smacking, smacking something. Anyway, all right. (laughs) I just hear your hand gestures. Okay. By the early 1930s, westerns were a dead genre, box office poison to the major studios, and relegated to the poverty row studios churning out pulp. But John Ford returned to the genre that built his career, equipped with a grand hotel-style script and relatively unknown hero named John Wayne. Stagecoach's critical and popular success revitalized the genre. I any right to live? What have I done? We're the victims of a foul disease called social prejudice, my child. In you go, Dallas, in a pleasant voyage. Mrs. Whitney, you're not going to let your friend travel with that creature. Farewell, ladies. Ah! You must warn your passengers that they travel at their own risk. At their own risk? So what's the trouble, Lieutenant? Geronimo. Did you all hear what the Lieutenant said? Yes, we heard. Me and Buck are taking this coach through. Passengers are not. Now, whoever wants to get out can get out. What are you trying to do, scare somebody? They got me in here, and I'll let them try to put me out. The worst thing to do. Make room for one more. I'm offering my protection to this lady. I can shoot fairly straight if there's need for it. That's been proved too many times, Hatfield. (laughs) 
Geronimo and his Apaches are on the warpath. In Tonto, Arizona, a group of strangers, including the pregnant wife of a cavalry officer, a whiskey salesman, a southern gentleman gambler, a banker, a lady of ill repute, an alcoholic doctor, and a U.S. marshal are exiled or desperate to get to Lordsburg, New Mexico. Their coach driver is Buck, the best movie character in any movie ever. (laughs) Along the way, they pick up Ringo, who escaped from jail to avenge his father and brother, whose killer also awaits in Lordsburg. With danger surrounding the coach and events from within and without testing the passenger's resolve, can the stagecoach survive Geronimo? And if so, the fate awaiting them at their destination. Mm. So... I guess I just got to get started with John Ford here. Um, It can be difficult to reconcile that other giants like Orson Welles, Akira Kurosawa, Ingmar Bergman have all learned from someone, but it's true. Uh, John Ford is a foundational cinematic artist and considered to be the essential filmmaker of his generation. Uh, Winner of six Academy Awards, Five for directing, one for best picture. He directed 10 actors in Oscar-nominated performances and helmed two Academy Award-winning documentaries. He was also the recipient of the Purple Heart for a machine gun bullet wound he took at the Battle of Midway and retired from the Naval Reserve as a rear admiral. This is... Are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) I wouldn't have laughed, but you laughed. I quit! (laughs) Anyway, <laughs> John Ford. What? You tell me. <laughs> yeah, I I watched a lot of his movies um, just through the guise of like, this guy knows how to construct shots, right? And I, I didn't really think about any of his politics or any of his background background which is funny because i've read a book about sam peckinpah Mm. that like broke down his upbringing and kind of what informed peckinpah's attitudes we we talked a little bit about it Mm -hmm. um but yeah doing doing the um deep dive into john ford what an interesting cat i mean he he started in portland maine was a cowboy for a hot second in arizona and then was convinced i think by his brother or friend to to go to hollywood and he just seemed to have a knack when he arrived in Hollywood between his work ethic, his intuition about shots and um, just being able to finish things and manage producers. Right. So just that kind of corporate politics thing. And so I think that there's that admiration um, that's warranted just from sheer volume. But I, I, I do find uh, to tip my hat, tip my hat a little bit or show my hand, whatever uh, with stagecoach. I think that this is probably strikes one of the better balances for him in Westerns uh, in regards to like an ensemble movie. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what was so good about Ford in movies that I've seen is that he's constantly like pulling you and pushing you through your judgments of different people or different characters. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. In a way, way that kind of transcends your common conventional movie. So for him to do that while producing two, three, five, six movies a year is fucking nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Like specifically with Stagecoach, it's like, it, I understand that this is in some ways because of the break between his previous Westerns and this one, this was like a revival film for him. Yeah. And he was going to work with all of like the old, like genre, like the caricature-esque, you know, prototype characters from Westerns and then trying to like rebuild them. So, 
the group dynamic in the stagecoach is that all of the high and mighty are going to fall. All of the lowly are going to rise up. And by the end, they're going to almost be like a cohesive unit, except for like the purest villains, of which is really only the banker. Like everyone else has at least a little bit of redemption. Yeah. Even though uh, John Carradine's Hatfield character, the Southern gentleman, kind of plays a villain, he's ultimately sort of vindicated because it turns out that he really is just. I feel like I feel like he's like chaotic neutral. Think so? Yeah, I just like the lawful know, evil. Yeah, like, I don't know. <laughs> he, he just he was transparent about his background as a as a gambler and a man of cards, and um, transparent about where he got some of his wealth and mm-hmm. things and was just very taken with the lady. Yeah. I don't know, man. I mean, this is right after the civil war in the 1860s and the dude was a Confederate scumbag. Fuck that guy. I was not paying attention <laughs> enough to that part. I mean, I was, but like not enough to be like this piece of shit. Yeah. So there's a scene um, where they're in the Fort Apache where they're voting as to whether or not they should go back or not, because they're realizing they're kind of in no man's land. Mm-hmm. And he, um, has a intimate conversation with Mal- uh, what's her name, Lucy Mallory, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, about being in her dad's regiment in Virginia. Oh, yeah. okay. And so it's the first time you kind of see those characters humanized because up at the up to that point, like Lucy Mallory was judging Dallas as a sex worker, um, as a gambler. Like uh, Hatfield was was looking down on protecting her virtue because you're seeing that she was being surrounded by like lower class people. Yeah. Um, and so for like, what, the first 30 minutes, you're like, oh, these people are trash. And then they have the little heartfelt moment about the Confederacy. Yeah. Um, backing up a little bit to Ford and his sort of methods and whatnot. Um, I read like an anecdote that he got his break because there was some big party and the director of the film that he was working on basically was just hung over. And so on that day, both he and this other guy whose name I think is Graham got basically to be a director for a day. And that was enough for them to basically start the beginning of their careers. So they had scratched through the ranks uh, to get to that point. And then they basically got their opportunity. As far as the symmetries that I'm seeing in the story, it kind of patterns some of the visual symmetries that I see in John Ford's style, specifically um, the meticulous blocking. And I did not recognize this until it was pointed out to me that you never see the characters like walk in front of each other mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they all like enter and exit in a way that they never it never messes the scene there's almost like a, a linear left right direction that all the characters are going to move in as well as the dialogue dialogue never really steps over other characters dialogue mm-hmm. and i think that might be a holdover from the silent era where he was basically used to a dialogue being one person at a time because that's how they had to do like the title cards. I didn't even think about that, yeah. And then perhaps that's how he basically just grew, grew from that point. There's a couple of like uh, uh, um, bluster moments where the the men are blustering over the choices they're going to make about if they're going to go forward or go back, where it at, at a certain point, it, it literally sounded as if someone had coached them to say, well, blah, 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 you know, like, the, and I had, I lost a lot of the dialogue in the, in those moments, but yeah. you know, like I, maybe it wasn't so important, but I, I do, I didn't pay attention to the fact that they, they did have a very, very spaced out as like one at a time. This is their turn and their turn and their turn. Everyone had their moment. As an experiment, I think we would find it to be 
pretty illuminating that like if you turn the volume off on the dialogue, the, the way that the blocking structured, the way that they're they're staring and looking, and the fact that like some of the characters are looking directly at the camera, um, basically to have you identify what they're feeling. Other characters are looking away so that you don't judge them. There's such a a, a conscious choice to kind of push and pull that like this this could serve as a silent movie. I bet. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. I agree. I agree. And how how far outside of this was it for silent film? Was it like five or six years? It was like a decade. Really? Uh, like over a decade, I think. It was 39. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's what? Mm-hmm. 22, 25-ish? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how long it took to phase in or out. Uh, another element was like the hero is introduced last. And that's kind of a... Uh, uh, it's pretty typical for ensemble cast movies. Is that someone who's like almost late to the party or almost doesn't make the boat or almost, you know, doesn't whatever. And then you get that probably very innovative for its time, like sliding zoom shot with uh, John Wayne uh, racking the Winchester rifle. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty cool shot. That was a great shot. Apparently that was like a move that he did. That was like a, like a staple John Wayne move, the way he like flipped it and caught and had it ready to go. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I saw this movie very differently this time. Okay. I don't see John Wayne as the hero. I see Dallas as the hero. Well, she did have top billing, Claire Trevor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it's all about, um, it's not all about, but I feel like that the movie orbits around people's assessment or judgment of her, their transformation. And she basically has been beaten down. Society's judgment of her is basically, yeah, just caused her self-esteem to get fucked over. And so it's through the interactions with all the different characters that she's had her transformation. I think John Wayne didn't really transform at all. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's actually a side character in her story. I see. But he's also the key. That. Yeah. He's also the key that gets her to self-actualize. Actualize. Like he, you know, we have um Yeah, you're right. He's the only one who's like calling out, like, hey, aren't you gonna give her a drink? Exactly. Like we have Hatfield who is who's looking after uh Miss Lucy, Mrs. Lucy. And then we have all the other characters who have a tentative relationship, but nobody, nobody wants to lay a finger besides Doc on having any type of friendly relationship with Dallas. And when, um, you know, we've got Ringo kid that comes in who doesn't have any idea what her background is, but just sees that. And actively chooses not to know. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, like respects her and, um, chooses to accept her for where she is, which I think opens the gateway for Dallas to move out of that, um, shame she might be feeling i mean she's she still obviously is feeling this stigma throughout the entire movie of her past and if she's worthy of the affections that she's getting from ringo kid but i think that his affections at all are what allow her to transition i i see what you're saying when lucy mallory has her child and dallas takes care of her and then brings the child back out fuck the kid i'm just kidding they treat her differently. So yeah. there's this yeah. element of her turning from like a Mary Magdalene character to like a Virgin Mary mm. um, yeah. kind of character. So there's there's this night. very weird like mother-child dynamic with the men in, in her mm-hmm. um, where once she shows her maturity above all, the, all of them, it's like, oh. So there's a transformation around the other people as well. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, like obviously there's, a, there's the gun battled in with Ringo and then they run off. But again, he, he, I, there's so much push and pull. Like I, I, I was there. Was no, so, I, I, I was so enriched by this movie because, like, 
for example, with the to to skip ahead to the shootout, just to kind of reinforce this point mm-hmm. about Ringo, whether or not he is or is not the hero. When there's the shootout, when the shots ring out, it cuts away from him, and it's actually showing her on the bridge, mm-hmm. like responding to the shots. So that's not normal. It's the death <laughs> of her old life and the beginning of the new. Well, that's also a John Ford thing. He doesn't like to show violence, except in very ah, fleetingly, okay. and he likes to show. He likes to in, infer the violence through the reaction of the people around yes. it. Back to the oh. silent movie thing. Yeah. And no, I, I'm, I'm on board. I think that uh, Dallas is probably the main character because all of the events of the, like including the exile uh, in Tonto and all of the other events, like with the, the friendships and the, yeah, like Doc, she is central to everything. And I guess, you know, she is, she got top bill casting for this movie. Mm-hmm. It was her movie. Uh, John Wayne, and I don't know if this is like an insurance policy kind of thing, was he was he was in some movies, but he got top billing after this movie. He, so this was well, a star making performance. It was for him. it was basically the only way that the movie could get produced was because they didn't want John Wayne. They wanted Cooper. What was Gary the, Cooper? Gary, Gary Cooper. Co- they wanted Gary Cooper. Gary, he, I imagine he'd be like too old for the role at that point. That's they they were like we want Gary Cooper and we want Marlene Dietrich. And um, that's some foreshadowing right there. Yeah. And Ford put his foot down. He goes, no, I, I am going to have John Wayne. Like he is the, he's the perfect every man. I, and so as part of that back and forth negotiation, John Wayne was not given top billing. I, impl- I didn't know this too, that he bombed out early in his career. So in 1930, he was in a movie called uh, the big trail. And he just bombed. And so he was relegated to le- lesser known Westerns and throughout the 30s. So he languished. Um, so that's partially why he was considered a liability. Hats off to John Ford creating John Wayne, which yeah. I'm sure their relationship, that would have been a, a delight to see those fucking dick swinging contests <laughs> where John Wayne's like, no, I invented John Ford. And they're yeah. drinking while everyone else gets to sit around and listen to them try to one up each other. I don't know anything about John Wayne. Anything. I don't know anything about his past i don't know anything about his what he was like outside of film uh marion robert morrison also known as john wayne was from iowa he got his start in the props department fox studios marion yeah marion uh the reason he has the nickname duke is because duke was the name of his dog Mm. and he uh, the dog was known as little duke and he was known as big duke (laughs) which carried on i'm 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 35 years <laughs> he was in some of the, the westerns that Brady's talking about. He was uh, cast as Duke Morrison, and then eventually became John Wayne. Originally, it was going to be Anthony Wayne, but then some studio boss decided that Anthony was too Italian. Mm. <laughs> uh, <that> makes sense. <laughs> Making Italian hands, shaking them to this guy. A very interesting man. Yeah, um, it doesn't surprise me about the casting because one thing that John Ford did do. Uh, in addition to sticking to his guns as far as main casting was, he was very specific about extra casting. He had very intricate oh, ideas yeah. about casting extras. And if you, if you don't see it in Stagecoach, which, you know, I, I, that's, that's fine, uh, go watch Grapes of Wrath because in the Grapes of Wrath, like everybody that's in the background is like perfect. Mm. So it doesn't surprise me that John Ford had like a vision and he was not going to be pushed away from it. Yeah, and I, uh, so Grapes of Wrath was only a couple years after, right? So I think the cast in this, every single one of them represents some archetype mm-hmm. so well. Again, that's what that's what impressed me, really left its mark on me this second time around of like, 
Oh, that's right. They're in like a stagecoach for like half the movie. And so it's very, very self-contained, which then requires a lot of micro decisions, right? Because if it's, if you're in an enclosed space, you have to make things interesting with lots of little Right, little details of relationships, well, dynamics, yeah. dramas. It's, it's said to come from a, a French story called Bol de Sif. Um, uh, forgive my pronunciation. It's about people that were in the Franco Prussian War who were leaving in a stagecoach to go to a safe, safe place that also had very like um, stationary characters. Like you had the sex worker, you had the banker, you had. So it was like, it was said to be a mixture of two stories, and one of them was the. The Bol de Sif. My my best accent for that. <laughs> one one criticism that I will introduce as far as the um, stagecoaches, we're talking about dramas inside the stagecoach, and it's basically just hours of them uh, while Buck is driving the horses. They're they're all just like talking to each other, and I would say that like the staging of the dialogue is really weird. Like you know how uh, when you have the cameras reverse angle, so it looks like the people are facing each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, that did not really happen a lot. It looked no. like everyone was like speaking off to like from the from the left hand side to the right into like the void, and we as the viewer have to remember that they're speaking back and forth to each other because it looks like everyone's just speaking to the left. There are so many fucking people in that stagecoach. There are like at times you can barely, Sorry, yeah, you can barely even like you're like wait, there's only four people. Wait, no, there's eight. Like there's, there's ten. There's so many fucking yeah, people on that Yeah, it's it is cartoonish how like it goes back and forth between being very claustrophobic to being like wait, this is a suburban. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the my feeling from watching it this time, I was kind of alluding to this earlier with the like looking at the camera versus looking away from the camera is that John Ford constantly is having them look away from the camera. So that you can have this like a detached empathy for them. Mm. Because if you have the reverse shot, it's like they're engaging with each other as the characters instead of like them isolated from the response. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Sure. Like, I get it. Yeah. So it it's, it's breaking that rule all the time. And it, at first it's jarring, but like once, I don't know, I would just, I really vibed with this movie the second time. Yeah. Yeah. Just curious. Did you watch like a restoration or which, which do you know what? Uh, yeah. So I watched it. Yeah, I bought the Blu-ray, the Criterion Blu-ray, like five to ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just been sitting there waiting to be... I think this is the third time I watched it. Okay. But yeah, it's a beautiful restoration. So I've seen this movie. This is my third viewing. And the last time I saw it was like a, a restored print. And it was gorgeous. If you have the opportunity to watch this movie restored, I would say definitely watch it restored. Um, because there are... It's, it's a really old movie. And... The restoration definitely brings oh, yeah. detail and vibrancy and more of the the art out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can we talk about some of the camera work? Oh, oh man, please. I, mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So uh, John Ford is a really he does really great compositions. That like when you have names like Ingmar Bergman and Akira Kurosawa who reference John Ford in their movies, you know that you're on to some some good stuff. Uh, particularly Kurosawa because he comes from like a fine art background. Um, the way John Ford composes his scenes, I think, is fantastic. He set up the sort of the the entry of like what would eventually become like the spaghetti western style of like big panoramic shot and then suddenly to a close up or mm-hmm. uh, like scanning like panning across the screen and all of a sudden like jam over to the one side where like Geronimo and the Apaches are waiting. Yeah, yeah. His choice of vistas, uh, you know, Monument Valley. 
was basically unknown until this movie. Like the folks who worked at like some uh, general store adjacent to the Navajo reservation that Monument Valley occupies took photographs to Hollywood to basically sell as like a tourist trap. They wanted to promote the place because it was so beautiful. And then somehow the, the word filtered out to John Ford and that's where he wanted to set the movie in addition to like a California, like cowboy town. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't that, well, they filmed part of it at like the, the studio ranch, wherever the, mm-hmm. uh, what's, what's the name of that place? I can't remember. Um, I know what you're talking about. Let me find out. Thank you. Much of it was what the border of Arizona and Southern Utah. Mm-hmm. So the guy who drove the, the pictures to Hollywood to convince them to shoot there was, uh, his name is Harry Golding. He's a, uh, Colorado rancher who moved to Southern Utah and became friends with the Navajo, uh, tribe and gained their trust and actually was uh, was able to buy like 640 acres, um, which was obviously very rare because they had reason to not believe white sure. people. Yeah, sure. Um, so I think this guy was very much a bridge uh, to allow the Hollywood system to to come shoot in the land, the, the Navajo land, which is great because, I mean, the fact that John Ford shot like seven movies there, I mean, each movie gets only progressively better in terms of the cinematography, right? So... Before watching Stagecoach, I watched The Searchers from the 50s. Maybe his last movie with John Wayne in Monument Valley. I can't remember. But it's got the Technicolor pop that's just like, whoa, like there's too much color and too much information going into my eyeballs. Mm -hmm. So if I could take the cinematography from that movie and just put it in Stagecoach, that would be the best movie of all time. (laughs) (laughs) Because the story in Stagecoach is better than The Searchers for me. They, he doesn't like to move the camera around that much, but he, then he breaks that rule a couple of different times. So there's like that really fantastic shot that apparently uh, like minted Yakima Cannon's career where the stagecoach is going through the river oh my God. and they actually put the camera on top of the stagecoach. And of course you can, you can see the shadow a little bit, yeah, but, but it's such a great shot. And then it, there's another one where during the final chase, even though most of the shots are the stagecoach fixed, there is like a really great parallax shot where you see the Apache riders in the back and the camera sweeps around while also like turning with the stage coat. It's a beautiful shot, yeah. but that does break one of his rules. But for the most part, the camera's relatively... Well, there, there were just a lot of things where I was, it, was, it was bold and dangerous to be doing. I mean, uh, I, was, I was actually very, very surprised when we were watching it, you know, just in that scene when the, the stagecoach is crossing the river with the two, the two um, logs to keep it afloat. And you had the camera fixed on the top looking over the horse that's going into the river. And I was like, that's... That's fucking cool. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was a bold choice. Mm-hmm. And, but the, I feel like that's like... That's like you know, spit in comparison to some of the other stuff that he was doing. So, um, but his cinematographer was doing like two to three films a year. It was bonkers. It it doesn't surprise me back in the day. I, I know. Yeah. Like I, I I know, but it's just like, these guys must have never fucking slept or, I mean, you know, he's got like six families around the country that he'll like go and check in with occasionally, but he's constantly working kind of a thing. Now you're talking. Yeah. I, but I mean, Oh, it's incredible. As we come marching, marching in the beauty of the day, a million darkened kitchens, a thousand mill lost gray, are brightened by the beauty a sudden sun discloses. And the people hear us singing bread and roses, bread and roses. As we come marching, marching, we battle to ferment. 
For they are women's children, we'll mother them again. Our lives shall not be sweated from birth until life closes. Hearts can start. What would you say is his visual style? Like, what would you say is like if you had to put like a fine point on it? Or what, what would be a scene from a movie that you would say, hey, that's a John Ford movie right there? Oh, I mean, the, the scene in The Searchers where the mom comes out of the door and like the camera follows her out of the door and kind of um, pans across as John Wayne's character's writing in from the distance and behind him is one of the Monument Valley icons. Okay, yeah. It's that, fucking nuts because yeah. it's got the door framing thing he does, the sweeping landscape to show humans are small and then the weird like, uh, economical movement, right? It's like, it's not a flashy doll shot. It's, it's very short. It's like three seconds long. Um, but it's like, whoa, this is very powerful. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, it's hard to describe. His stuff is like chunky. It's like, yeah. it's not flashy, <laughs> but it's like, like, like when they were in the fort, like there were shots where you could see the ceiling and the ceiling had these little like light lighting touches uh-huh. across the, and it's just like, yeah, or like, ah, or little, uh, little like reflections, or like little, um, like uses of shadow. Yes, like mm-hmm. like shadow and profile. Yes, it's almost as if like he's either aware of like negative space and like in a very, um, almost like a like a woodcut like block. Yes, you know, there like, you go. Like, uh, what's that German guy? Durer, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Or, um, yeah, using like shadows as a character. Yeah. So. No, I think you're right. Like, uh, it's not necessarily flashy, but it's like substantive. Mm-hmm. No, I would agree. I, I, very, I don't know enough of his work, if I'm going to be t- totally honest with you guys, to make um, a kind of assessment like that. I I was going to jokingly say Dusty, but then I just felt like a total asshole. But I I just... <laughs> this, it's Rear Admiral. Yeah, Thank you. Um, <laughs> this no, but, is what I bring to the table. But it's just it's just not, I'm not familiar enough to be able to make that kind of a call. I was just in, in watching Stagecoach and watching some of the choices that he was making in order to get a feeling or a sense of um, solitude or or inward reflection from some of the characters, especially Dallas. You know, the, um, he and a cinematographer are doing an exceptional job about making something feel so lonely and yet still feel so unimaginably wildly um unattainable like when they're riding through the um the scenery of southern yes. utah and yeah but it's, allison's nailing it it's like this weird like you're being very nice big, no you, you're nailing it seriously it's like it's this small big thing of like the faces are huge but then it's like cut and the humans are like six grains on the film and so it's just I constantly uh, subverting your expectations. So I, I feel like that's what a lot of his yeah. visual style is. Yeah, there's like a one shot and I can't remember exactly what's going on, but uh, I don't know if it's John Wayne in the doorway, but in the behind him in the doorway is of course this like magnificent like backdrop. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. to me, that's like the signature John Ford yes. moment other than the other things, other tricks that he likes to do. I do think that there's a very rare skill that was pretty unique to him of showing horses in action mm-hmm. in a way that's not common horses are often just like an accessory to things in a lot of westerns and and he i think that's part of his visual style is like to show horses as a key character i guess those horses were running their asses off that and i knew, i know that parts of it they were speeding up the film but like but otherwise they were well they were Boston ass. Okay, so about horses. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, horses. Um, horses hoe down. 
so some of the some of the thing you're talking about the horses hauling ass is not necessarily about uh, like building drama for the scene of like the big chase sequence at the end um, or the camera speed like speeding up the camera to make it look like they're going really really fast. It has to do with stunt work uh, because if horses are running slow, then their um, their stride is a little bit messier, mm-hmm. and if the horses are going fast, then the legs are more in line. So if you're gonna if you're a stuntman oh on a God. horse and yeah. you're climbing around doing stuff, or if you if you need to jump from the horse uh, to another thing, they're more stable. You need them to be as stable as possible. We need to be as straight line as possible. Exactly. I don't know if, don't know if going faster makes them any more or less stable, but I can imagine yeah, if you're yeah. trying to calculate how to slink down to between six horses and underneath the underneath the right. st- stagecoach, you'd probably need them to stay as straight as possible. Mm-hmm. Right. So some of the big stunts that we see at the end, um, th- the speed of the horses was as directed by the stuntmen in order to give them the best chance of survival. Oh my God. <laughs> I just like the stuff that they like, this makes me think of like some of those old Buster Keaton, like, like train yard fucking stunts. Like that- the general. Yes. Or the front of the house that falls in the window perfectly. Exactly. Where it's just like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It struck me. I realized like, holy shit, that's uh, Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark when he's in front of the the car. Yeah. 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 That's bizarre. I don't know how often. Well, that, yeah, Spiel, that... Spielberg's a massive John Ford fan. I mean, okay, like if you if you watch if you've watched any of the Indiana Jones movies or like particularly Temple of Doom, I would say, um, just Spielberg routinely references John Ford, and Indiana Jones does a fair bit of that. So yeah, the the bull whip, like dragging underneath the truck and Raiders, like that's a hundred percent. It's an homage mm-hmm. for sure. But yeah, the the stunt Yakima Canet, of course, like I mean, well maybe not of course because I don't think that. TikTok kids know anything. <laughs> but Yakima Canada is a big name. <laughs> that was the best self-edit you've done Such since I've been podcasting with you. <laughs> well, just like I was like, oh, Such he's a legend. A oh, it's it's epic. Oh, he's an icon. It's like, you know, people don't know anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, our our, our listeners know everything. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, Yakima Canet is a legendary stuntman because he was a stuntman that came up in the time where all these like roughneck dudes were breaking bones, just yeah. doing whatever the director told them to do. And uh, Yakima was a guy that would he he had the guts to go for things, but he also had the brains to kind of make it work. And John Ford did not like putting people at risk that they that didn't have to be at risk. Mm-hmm. So like when they did the carriage drag stunt, where the quote unquote you know the Apache warrior. Or wait, so there's the one stunt where the Apache guy jumps on the horse, and there's another one where John Wayne's character jumps on the yeah. yeah. There's six horses in a row, right. and John Wayne is hopping from horse to horse to horse. So he did both of those stunts, yeah. but during the carriage fall scene where he's the Apache and he falls underneath, like John Ford, after shooting it one time for the one take, just like refused to do any more. Like like Yakima, he got it, he got mm-hmm. it right, and then they're they're not going to do it again mm-hmm. because he was too worried that he was going to die. Yeah. I don't. I mean, I don't. I don't blame him. Can you imagine? I, I was reading about this, and it was like he had to stay perfectly straight and bring his arms into his chest, but not have his elbows up so the axle of the stagecoach didn't rip his fucking arms off right. as he goes underneath it. And then he ran Gross. over, and he's like, "Do we need to do it again?" And John Ford's like, "Oh my god, please no, yeah. no, 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 we got it." I, I get the like. There's the sense of like a chicken and the egg situation with John Ford, where you know the work ethic of 
putting on multiple movies a year, coupled with working with some of the best people, right? Uh, it's like you don't need that many shots, but also they're also they're, they know that he is going to work. He's going to expect to shoot with as few shots as possible, so mm-hmm. that you know what I mean. Also, I realized that like the less shots you have, the less interference a producer could have in terms of like saying, "Why don't you pick that one or that one?" Right? It just makes editing easier. Yeah. John Ford in this interview on the BBC in 1968, it's great. People should check it out. It's about 70 minutes long. Um, it's like five years before he died. And he's just smoking his cigar and just kind of playing playing with the guy, right? It's this really young British guy, journalist, uh, whippersnapper. And he, um, John Ford is just flippant. He's like, the guy's asking him, like, what is it about the West that, that you really dug? Like, what, you know, why is it you think people really resonate with your movies that are Westerns? He's like, I, I don't know. Like, can you rephrase the question? Like, I don't. I'm not really in love with the West. It's just like producers couldn't make their way to where I was so that it was easy for me to get away from everybody. Mm. It's like very functional for him, Mm -hmm. which knowing his life, like, I don't know how much of that is true. I I don't know how much of it is just him being a contrarian to play with this guy. He did love his yacht. He had a yacht? He had a huge yacht. Go on. He He was a Navy man. That's why he dressed like a weird sailor. I want to dress like him. (laughs) I'd I'd look like a little boy, though. (laughs) <laughs> he looks like a little boy in, yeah. his, in his sailor costume. But I mean, just based on how he lived his life later on, I could I could see that that would be the ideal situation. Plus how many how many directors and the stories do we have where it's like they are broken by countless producers coming in and nitpicking everything under the sun that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Like and and how many people leave to go work in different countries to go direct and continue with their continue yeah. with their work to be away from the Hollywood studio system. Especially back then. And that's what's weird about the whole uh, like auteur theory where like the director is the voice of the movie when we all know that like there's a shit ton of people involved mm-hmm. with movies. Yeah. Is like a lot of the director, yes, it's like their aesthetic choice, but a lot of it also is like the best directors know how to handle producers. Mm-hmm. So it's like this power Managing pyramid. Up. Yeah, it's like mm-hmm. this power pyramid where it's like as long as they're the top dog and not dealing with somebody else, like Mm-hmm. they're considered a good director or of note. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So by the end of the movie, when the stagecoach finally arrives in Lordsburg, uh, all the, the wrongs have been righted. Everybody wins. That's going to win. All the villains that have been defeated. Uh, the Ringo kid shoots Luke Plummer and his two brothers <laughs> or whoever he is. He was, they just sucked. And then Curly, his friend, uh, basically decides rather than take him back to jail, just to set him loose to his place across the river in Mexico, will he be you know free from the law to start his new life with Dallas? So we get like a real happy ending, mm-hmm. nice conclusive ending. And this movie, because of its success as well as the success of um, another thirty-nine Western revival movie, Dodge City, uh, starring Errol Flynn. We saw uh, a reemergence of Westerns for basically another 20 years. So all through the 40s and in the 50s, we saw lots and lots of Westerns. And that would change later in the 60s as the spaghetti Westerns brought a lot more of a uh, sadistic killer nihilism. Italian. That classic Italian edge. I'm just curious, how did the ending of this movie make you feel? In ter- like, did it feel cheese balls? Did it feel like, hey, that's a good popcorn munch and good time at the movies? I really liked it. I I think that it's a good American hero story where, or the, you know, the American hero underdog story where 
you have this. We're talking about Dallas. Well, I was actually talking about uh, Ringo, but Mm. Dallas also. But you have Ringo, who's supposed to be this outlaw, this dangerous, dangerous outlaw that people are looking out for. And he ends up going in and redeeming himself and also really, really going after the bad guy and, and making making sure that all of his debts are paid, so to speak, mm-hmm. before he can really, really go be be a husband or a man for Dallas. And meanwhile, we also have Dallas, who's uh, uh, reluctantly but still being honest and showing Ringo what her true history is. And they still um, they still accept each other. And so I actually think that it was a fine ending. You know, I didn't think it yeah. was I didn't think it was cheesy. I just thought, you know, it's quite a I would say it was predictable. But mm. I, I don't know if it was cheesy necessarily. Okay. I have invited friends and family. I have coerced. I have pleaded. I have desperately asked. I have sincerely gotten close to building a commune. Some of this is my background with cults uh, and compounds and communes and people who are secessionists uh, that leave the United States and then the United States needs to gobble them up uh, yet again to unite the states of America um, but John Wayne and, uh, Claire Trevor, uh, riding off into the sunset, I'm like, yeah, I get it. Like if it's, even if it's not rational, like you're going off somewhere and you're just like getting away from it all. Um, so I don't necessarily see it as a happy or a, uh, a happy ending. I see it as just like a, this like impulsive thing of like getting away from it all mm-hmm. outsiders. Cause a lot of this is about, mo- uh, this movie, a lot of it is about people on the fringes. Mm. And so people on the fringes are going to live on the fringes. That's well, kind of like the Westerns in general. It's like a, you know, like escapism. Yeah. You know, like the idea yeah. of like, there's like this like wide open possibility. Right. That's just beyond your reach. And if you're willing to take the risk, then you can get there. And Josh just said something that's really important for people out there to understand, which is escapism is often used for people to turn their brains off with huge blockbuster movies. But this is actual escapism where the characters are trying to escape. Anyway, just wanted to point out. Multiple Literal escapism. Yes. Yeah. Can we rewind for just a second and talk mm-hmm. about Tom Tyler? I just, everything was going great for me in this movie up until his role of Luke. Oh, he's a terrible actor. He was a terrible actor. I mean, he's like a physically impressive dude. Like he looks like he's a big ass guy. Sure, sure. And I mean, like, you know, he, what was he in? He was an adventurous of Captain Marvel. He looks very strong and dapper, but he was terrible in this. And I thought it was so strange mm-hmm. that after you have a really, really interesting cast where they all have, they're all caricatures and they're all kind of goofy and funny, but well played. And then bringing this guy and he wasn't in for more than five minutes or so, but it was, he, it was, it was goofy how bad it was. Yeah. I would say that, you know, um, uh, Doc Boone, played by Thomas Mitchell. Mm-hmm. He got the Academy Award for Supporting Actor. He in, was great. In Stagecoach. And he I was thought fantastic. Doc Boone as a character was wonderful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was strange for the Luke fella to be so cartoonish. Yes. And just like, not in a good way. Yes. It was hard to take it seriously, especially that that's like Ringo, like Ringo Kid, who's the ultimate, you know, outlaw to go and take care of this. Right, because there's good outlaws and there's bad outlaws. Yeah, and he's going to go take care of this guy. <laughs> I'm just like, okay. I don't know, weird. I had a different experience with this. What'd you think? It wasn't his acting. I think it was John Ford's choice to, pl- it's kind of like a silent movie experience where like, so first of all, 
what we're, who we're talking about, Luke Plummer is this character that killed John Wayne's brother and dad. So uh, Ringo, John Wayne's character, he's in jail when he hears this news. So he, his motivations for going to Lordsburg, Lordsburg is to seek revenge on Luke Plummer. Ringo arrives at this bar and Luke's there. And it's the classic Western trope of like, everyone knows there's going to be like a duel. But instead of going silent, like the piano player, like looks at Luke and he's like acting like a little cartoon <laughs> character from like Steamboat Willie, you know, he's just like, yeah, it's on. I'm going to, you know, signal your doom. So I, I feel like there was kind of this comedy element, which was trying to take a piss out of the seriousness of the situation. So like the aces and eights and the black. Yeah. Cat. So I yeah. think, I think it was more just a stylistic choice than necessarily his acting, mm, okay. which maybe is subverting expectations and it's just not working. I don't know. Or it could be the whole idea that, you know, John Ford is aware that he's like packaging together all the tropes into one thing. Yeah. And it's, we got all of our other characters. We got the town drunk. We got like the, the hayseed driving the wagon. We've got. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Buck, but, was, Buck was great. <laughs> but at counterpoint to contradict myself, I mean, the guy who played Luke Plummer seemed like he was in a high school production. So. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you mm. for bringing it back. I will say as far as other performances go, I think that John Carradine as Hatfield was also kind of interesting to watch. Oh my God. Because he's processing a lot. And of course, we're talking about John Carradine, the progenitor of David <laughs> and Keith and all these other Which, Carradines. Which, by the way, I was reviewing the Carradine lineage and um, hadn't made the connection that it's like the fucking Baldwin brothers, but for long-faced dudes. Yeah, Skeletor. Yeah, We've I talked know! About, yes. I know! And I was like, yes. there, that one? Yeah. Fucking what's his name for Revenge of the Nerds is a mm-hmm. Carradine. I was like, what? Yeah. I I my mind was blown. My that's ears what, melted. It's a brood. Yeah. Months ago when I watched Choose Me, that's when I was like hypothesizing if Keith is actually the most attractive one because it's like no, they're all they're, they're all, all strange. <laughs> but relatively speaking. However, however, uh he was he was a dapper Dan when we were watching King of the North. King of the North Pole. King of, yeah, Emperor of the North. Emperor of the North, thank you. Yeah, he, he's fairly young and yeah, he's all right. His lips are too full. Fleshy. Fleshy, supple, pillowy. Turgid. Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> Engorged. <God damn> Plump. <laughs> Sorry. I hate the word turgid. I hate the word turgid. So you're, you're, you're criticizing his lips. Okay. No, like, I'm just, you know, maybe but, maybe that's why he never got like lead roles in the 60s. Fair enough. But do, do we all agree that the dad looked like a nightmare? <laughs> he looked <laughs> He looked like he was in a Tim Burton movie, like claymation movie. It was like they're like making oh, a yeah. fake like yeah, bad guy. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mac the knife. Yes. Yeah. Holy cow, his his bone structure makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. Anyway, he he looks he looks like a magician then now and forever. Yes, you know because he was like so pale and uh, the way they had him dressed up and sort of as like a dangerous gambler man, I thought they were doing kind of like a Doc Holiday thing and that maybe like his his appearance was uh, kind of like some you know unspoken condition. I'll be your Huckleberry. Exactly. Mm-mm. But uh, now he's a he is a strange looking cat. <laughs> 
could you? He's I mean, somebody. He's somebody we could see just like walking down the sidewalk in Portland with this fucking velvet black cape. Just oh my god, and he's just still drifting no, and, and the thing is, is that he'll gloves. wear he'll wear like shoes that separate his toes individually and get so much pussy. Portland, what's wrong with you? He's really into Ricky. <laughs> I thought his performance was nice. I thought he did a good job, um, mostly because like he's the creep. And then he's, he, I think by the end of the movie, he's redeeming himself. Wait, what's, I, uh, Hatfield. seriously, um, my ignorance, what was his redemption? Cause there's so much, there's so much like redemption or resolution. So, what was his? So his, his redemption is that you find out, and I know this is going to sound like this is going to be ghoulish, like a, maybe grim overkill or whatever. Like his, like his face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're all out of bullets. And like it, the whole idea of like the Apache as like this ominous boogeyman is that they're all going to die a fate worse than death. They're all going to be like tortured to death or ripped apart or whatever. Mm-hmm. So rather than kill himself or shoot his last bullet at another warrior, he decides he's going to kill Mrs. Mallory. And uh, I recognize that that's not necessarily like a very kind thing in the sense, but it is a it is a, an example of mercy if you think about it in the context of people who might all be meeting a very terrible demise. I am going to say something racist, but it's in context of the time. Sure. So it's better dead than bed by red. Oh, really? Is that that the the expression? That was a phrase, yeah. I've never heard that before. Neither had I until I got gross for this movie. Oh, that's awful. Yeah. So I think that that might be him. Maintaining the racial purity. Yeah. And I wonder if like 1930s audience was like, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. (laughs) That's our principle, yeah. The other thing is, like, I think in, in Redemption that he does seem relatively self-interested, uh, but because he's after, he's trying to look after Mallory, like, he he's more of a participant and ends up, uh, I think he takes a bullet, right? I don't think he yeah. dies, but he, he no, definitely he, gets yeah, shot. Yeah, he gets shot. So, I don't know. That's that's my Redemption. It may not be, he's not like a, you know, like the shining star, but I think he, he elevates himself a little mm-hmm. bit. Do you, so I, I literally think he's interchangeable with Vincent Price. No. Like, as like withered, high cheekboned men. No, What's, Vincent Price could be on the cover of like a Sports Illustrated swimsuit. Shut up! <laughs> what for vampires? Stop it! No, he was he Vampire was an attractive he was an attractive, charming man in the the noir movie Leave Her to Heaven. He plays a lawyer who is trying to chase down. Okay, I'm talking. He's he's charming. Sure, but I like if 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 like. <laughs> and Price and like Dolly had like a weird Peter Cushing thank you oh yeah oh Peter Cushing is the most dapper out of all of them I want I want like heroin chic circa 1940 that's what I want I think Peter Cushing a few years later heroin chic so he's playing in a cool jazz band with a trumpet Miles, I love this. Miles Davis with Peter I love Cushing. It. <laughs> <laughs> Minus uh, Miles Davis, like Skeletor. Like, again, back to Skeletor. His weird <laughs> hair. Anyway, Josh, help us. So, <laughs> where have we gone? You mentioned, uh, we talked about like the, the end of the, the chase where they're out of bullets and they're all about to die. And mm-hmm. if the cavalry doesn't show up, then they're all going to be massacred by uh, Geronimo and the Apaches. Um, that, of course, is probably the most like, problematic problem of the whole movie is that the mm. Apaches are not really in nor many of the other characters of color 
are really given much to do other than just kind of be there and be the bad guys. Uh, the Navajo Nation uh, that was that where this was filmed also participated as extras in the film as uh, Geronimo's Apaches. They were paid $50,000, which is the equivalent of a million bucks in today's money uh, for use of the land as well as their participation. How do you think that this movie holds up today in terms of its representation of oh my god it's, it's disgusting it's, well it seems it seems pretty unenlightened i'll just oh, say completely. that completely yeah, yeah completely um to borrow a phrase from roger ebert as far as in the context of the time i don't know how to feel about it because that was sort of like the conventional thinking of the day uh but at the same time it's like if they had like one or two speaking characters that was sort of like representing their side of the story because you know geronimo like had his reasons for rising against the Absolutely. the government, like the American government as well as the Mexican government. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What what do you guys think of the? I don't. I don't. I don't know my Native American history in the 1800s in regards to that region, but I actually think that framing it from the perspective of white people being afraid of Native Americans getting revenge for stealing their land is actually kind of an interesting uh, thing to consider, right? Because like you can read it one way of like. They're just this nebulous, non-personalized, there's no individual character from that tribe that you really get to know. Other which, than, which makes them kind of like hard-ass and kind of cool in that sense. Yeah. Okay. But a phrase that we that crept up a couple years ago, the othering of the mm-hmm. um, of the tribe is is of note for sure. Yeah. But again, it's like it's like, I don't know. Uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, and the fact that like we are living in a time where things are better than ever in regards to representation because people have had these conversations mm. to push and fight for change. Um, so it doesn't feel as like high stakes as maybe it used to be. I see. It's a curiosity. Okay. Says the white guy. Yeah. I, I feel kind of ambivalent about it because on the one hand, it's like I think that if you look at John Ford and his, because it's not just about this movie, it's about like his whole, his whole all of his work. I think that some of the other characters like had some interesting characters of color, had some interesting things to do. Um, the Chris character at Apache Wells was always making jokes about his horse, about how he could, <laughs> yeah. his, he, he was beating his horse and it would always come back to him. But then his wife, Yakima, who gives us that nice little song at one point, uh, she actually runs off with the horse. Mm. <laughs> mm. As comedy, I thought it was fun, but... I'm also thinking about like, you know, the representational dynamics of that. I do think the most problematic part of this is the fact that the leader of the Apaches was a white guy in red face. I don't know if you noticed that, but like everybody, I could be wrong. I did not. But I got the sense that the facial features and bone structure of this person was such that it was, I was like, is that Burt Lancaster? (laughs) I don't think, are you sure? Yeah. So I, I feel like that the one time that they were able to individualize somebody, they're like, no, the audience wouldn't be interested in one of you. Mm. Yeah. You know, it's hard. We've talked about meeting a movie where it's at. And this would absolutely be one of the films that would benefit from maybe having an opening card that says like representations of First Nations in this film are deplorable. And we're aware of that. But it's also a, an artifact of its time. Mm. And yeah. but, but it's it's not... It's it's one dimensional. It doesn't have any backstory as to why Geronimo, unless I mean unless it's an educated audience, and I'm not I'm not educated on Native American history as far as you know what was going on, except for the fact that we had like 
caused mass illness and taken the land and, you know, killed and raped and murdered. But, you know, and it's like, I know that there were, there were battles that were going on back and forth, but it's like to just have it be some like ominous, like storm on the horizon coming towards these people in the stagecoach is, is seems easy. Yeah. But again, it was made in what? 1930, 1939. Yeah. 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 I, I, I kind of struggle with it because part of me is like, uh, taking in concert with other films. It's like, this is just in the background information of like the othering of, you know, these, these groups, um, then basically not waspy like white anglo-saxon american yeah folks so i see it as being a, a part of that and on the other hand i'm thinking like well do you really expect john ford or these people in the conventions of their time to jump out of their skin and adopt a a, a perspective of the like basically from the future like what's what's really fair for people of the time who don't have who aren't thinking about things like the way that you're thinking about stuff i don't know how to land on that one as somebody who doesn't know how to land either, I was more upset by the fact that doctors are portrayed as alcoholics. <laughs> and as an alcoholic, I could tell you I'm not a doctor. So <laughs> <laughs> don't typecast us as doctors. Well, you know, the only other group that doesn't really get a lot of um, specific, like no lines or specific representation is the ladies of the Law and Enforcement Society that run doc and dallas out of town the, the one who like were the secret marshals of the town oh the league of law and order or whatever that yeah, busy yeah, body exactly. mm-hmm. yeah yes giga karens from back in the day <laughs> yeah. too bad your husband is a smuggling slut who is trying to run away with money i love how um john ford doesn't like bankers <laughs> no does anyone no well true story i don't know how to answer that question i don't think so no i they're never portrayed well yeah and i i don't know i I was just i was thinking of all the things my grandmother said in passing that she thought were just totally acceptable Ah. where i would i'd be like nanny and she and she would just be like well it's true and then she'd go smoke a pack of camels so you know I just came back from a conservative state, and I can tell you that's not just your grandma. That's your- <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting on top of the world. I'm rolling along. Yes, rolling along. And I'm quitting the blues of the world. I'm singing a song. Yes, singing a song. Glory, hallelujah, ready to call just like Humpty Dumpty I'm going to fall and I'm sitting on top of the world I'm rolling along rolling along hey, that's going to do it for Stagecoach uh, what do you guys think? not a really big western person mm-hmm. um, this however I don't know if I would categorize it as a traditional western it seems more of like a character focus. And it's quite funny. I think the the backstories, the, as brief as they are, the backstories that you get for all the characters set it up really well. Everyone is, it's not really, they're not super dynamic. Everyone is kind of a, I would say, a one to two dimensional character of whatever they're supposed to be. But it's funny and it riffs well. And because of this, because of the web working that they create between each other in the stagecoach, you are able to have character development through the interactions of everybody. And I 
I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the humor. I really enjoyed Buck. Um, I think that might he might have been my favorite part of the entire thing. <laughs> um, and and the doctor, the drunken doctor. But this is not. I don't know if I would choose this on a weekend by myself in the future. I mean, I'm sure it'll come up again and whatnot. But give it a soft six. I'll give it. I'll give it a soft seven. I've uh, I've got a little bit of a nostalgic uh, blind spot when it comes to film shot in Southern Utah. Um, I grew up there. I went and I went camping in a lot of the places that are portrayed here. So it is a good reminder for me of that area and kind of the attitude. So I'm just, I just vibe with movies like this where I'm like, okay, I get, I get what's going on here and there. And what's going on is often a, a respect for nature and understanding of the environment requiring a lot of hard work and a certain kind of attitude. And it's just one of the fucking most American places like that you could go to. I, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's iconic. Yeah. And I think that just kind of plays into like how I perceive the country just in regards to like this rugged individualism and what Americans want our country to be. And so to see this guy in the thirties kind of, flip it on its head in a way where he's like playing with like the social politics. It's, it's very progressive for a movie in the thirties. Yes. Yeah. And dear listener, I would focus less on the fact that this is a John Wayne movie and more like an ensemble movie. Um, it is, if you like Coen brothers movies or Quentin Tarantino, any of that stuff where there's a lot of characters that have maybe just a couple lines, but they feel fleshed out in the few lines that they, they have. Um, I, I think this is a movie for you. So I think this transcends the Western genre and uh, I would highly recommend this movie. This is essential cinema for me. Very good. Very good. Uh, So in preparation for the film, I read this kind of outlier uh, cinema theory that says that with the invasion of Poland and war in Europe, that John Ford had a sense that America might be coming into war pretty soon. And so that the presentation of all of these different characters from different backgrounds, sometimes at odds with each other, having to unify against a common threat was actually John Ford sort of, whether subconsciously or very consciously, signaling a need for a unified America to rise together. I don't know if I buy that theory. That seems like it might be uh, looking at the past with 2020, like looking with hindsight. Uh, every movie with an ensemble cast stuck in a ship or a situation they can't escape, be it Guardians of the Galaxy, Alien, Con Air, Mad Max, Fury Road. <laughs> Thank you. They all owe a debt to Stagecoach. John Ford brings all the old Western tropes together in a cohesive blockbuster style film with a little something for everyone. Innovative cinematography, kinetic storytelling, fabulous stunts and settings, memorable performances, and a director at the top of his game. This movie and its characters are going somewhere. I think this movie is fantastic. I don't think it's perfect. Uh, so I'm going to give it a near perfect nine. Yeah! Yeah! Woo! Yeah! Yeah! So that's going to do it for Stagecoach. Um, <laughs> as always, uh, you can follow us on Letterboxd, uh, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, next time we'll be getting back together for a darker, more nihilistic version yes. of the Western. Is it Wild Wild West? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's not. 
steampunk fever dream, Wild Wild West. <laughs> uh, no, we're going to be doing Sergio Leone's Fistful of Dollars. Oh! I'll just be talking about music the entire time. Sorry. You'll be talking about the movie and I'll just be like, here, I'm going to go over every single square inch of the score. Yeah. I'm excited because... I am too. Nihilistic Westerns might reflect actually how Americans truly feel. Yeah, despite so their dreams. Yeah, it's not about <laughs> aspirations and like wide open futures. It's just like, who's the man with the gun? Yep. <laughs> anyway, that's all for now. Uh, what do you guys uh, handles? I'm Josh Spaceman. Oh, Bruja Jones. Vegas Buffet. <laughs> when did you change it? <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought you wanted my PlayStation name. It's Brady Kimball everywhere. Wait a minute, wait a minute. For- Our handles for what? Because you, you said you, handle. You so. tell me. Handle just reminded you me. You just figured out, you losers. Fantasy of Fragrance on Letterboxd. Mint Floss on AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> Anarchy2k90. Hotmail.com. X Paranormal X on ICQ. Adios, muchachos. <laughs> we'll catch you on the flippity flop there, buckaroo. Yep. Yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs>